Well, good morning again, and I'm so glad you're here. And uh, it was just great to see all those folks lined up front. It's, it's, uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this, because I don't think I've ever said this before when new members have joined, but if I've never met you, I would like to do that. And that sounds <laughs> bizarre to even say that, but that's, that's kind of where we are. Um, but anyway, so glad you're here. Welcome. And uh, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Tim Udodge, another one of our pastors for a while anyway. And uh, he's going to be planting Grace and Peace Church here in town, but he's leading us in worship. Uh, as he mentioned, this is, uh, this is the Sunday that around the world is celebrated as Palm Sunday. It's also called Passion Sunday, and I, I think that can be a helpful way to think about it. Um, passion, meaning not so much feeling, but the, the sufferings of Jesus this week, especially toward the end of the week. And uh, I think it's good for the church to think about it, not just as Palm Sunday. We're not required to celebrate this on this day, but it's great to join with brothers and sisters as they do. Um, but you know, if you just kind of go from the celebration of Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in, children screaming and yelling, and the palm branches thrown down, you know, Hosanna. Uh, if you go straight from that to then the next Sunday, the celebration of Easter, and you don't really kind of deal with the suffering and the tragic sadness that's in that week, we're really sort of selling ourselves short or selling the, the narrative short. So uh, I do want to look at a passage. It, it doesn't go into all the details of his sufferings, but it certainly broaches it. So we're going to be in John chapter 19 uh, this, this morning. You can just follow there in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. Let me just say this before I read it. You're going you're gonna to see in this passage two very different kinds of people sort of do the same thing with Jesus. Uh, believe me, the, uh, the chief priests of the Jewish people in Jerusalem and Pontius Pilate, they just, I mean, culturally they come from different solar systems. But at the end of the, and they kind of get there different ways, but at the end of the day they're going to do the same thing. With, with the Messiah. I mean, really, if, if you had a headline for this day, it would be uh, God incarnate executed. That would be the headline. Uh, and, and, I, and last thing before I read it, I just, what I want us to think about is how they are doing something that we do as well. We don't have, we don't have Jesus physically here with us, you know, in our city, in our neighborhood to do it to him, but they're just overtly doing something that we do. All right, John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? 
But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Then verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So... The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, even as we have just now read about some of the sufferings of your precious Son, we, we feel the need to ask you to open up our ears. And um, thank you that we get to, with brothers and sisters around the world that we don't even know, to, to sing, to remember, to read, to meditate what your son did. And yet, Father, we still need your help to hear you. And so we pray that you'd open up our hearts, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, some of you, I would suspect, are familiar with TED Talks. You ever had somebody send you, uh, send you a link to a TED Talk? TED is a conference that started several years ago, I think uh, out west, and TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And these are talks. They're usually about mm, 18 to 20 minutes long, and, and somebody is really speaking about an idea. And uh, these videos are all over the, the Internet, and, the, and different cities host TED events. Greenville is going to host one downtown in about three weeks called TEDx. But uh, I looked on the te- uh, TED website just this month, and there was a, a newly posted talk. It was given in Vancouver last month, and it was just posted this month. And uh, it's by a young man who I, I, would, I would describe as a masterful communicator. Masterful communicator. And um, the name of the talk is The Gospel of Doubt. Gospel of Doubt. And here's where he's coming from. He, he starts you off when he's about 12 years old, and he's growing up in Texas in a, in a, sounds like a little charismatic church, maybe Pentecostal church. And 
what he was told about Jesus didn't pan out. What he was told about when Jesus was coming back didn't pan out. They told him Jesus would come back at Y2K, and that didn't happen, and it was, it was jarring to him because all his trusted mentors thought that was true. So then he, uh, he goes to school, and he does quite well. He goes to Ivy, uh, Ivy League undergrad and uh, Harvard MBA and thinks that, okay, th- this is where, like, it's going to come together and I'm kind of, in some ways, like, get my answers, and he doesn't get the certitude that he wants. He doesn't get the answers that he wants. And then he takes uh, his first big job in the working world. In 2008, he joins with Lehman Brothers, 2008. And he said he, rem- he remembered calling his family saying, we'll never be poor again. And then, of course, like 2008, it just, it blows up. So here's another savior that didn't come through. So then he gets uh, involved in, in f- uh, philanthropy and uh, nonprofits with other just kind of like high threshold, Ivy Leaguer, MBA types. And he thinks that, wow, wow these things that we're doing, these are amazing initiatives, we're going to turn things around in just a small amount of time, and, and they don't work. And where it leaves him is just kind of coming up for air and saying, here's what I was left with is the gospel of doubt. That, that when you make something ultimate, it will fail you. And he even uses the language. This is amazing. He uses the language of if you look to one of these things to be your savior, religion or schooling or do-goodism or money or career, if you try to make those your savior, they will fail you. And so to this audience, he commends the gospel of doubt. Question everything, doubt everything. Brilliantly communicated, spontaneous standing ovation. And here's the thing. As I watched it, on the one hand, I think there's a real humility about the way he stated what he said. Because he says, like, you know, I thought this would be it, and it wasn't. I thought this would be it. He's, he's telling you his story saying, I, here's how I got it wrong. And at the end of the day, he says, make nothing ultimate, and then what? Doubt everything, which makes doubt what? ultimate. And, 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 and again, this is not to make fun of him. He's doing something that every human being has to do, and it's this. Everybody has to make something ultimate. Even if you say you can't make anything ultimate, then doubt or skepticism is ultimate, or cynicism is ultimate. We may not say it this way, but, but you could use the language of when you make something ultimate, on, on your insides, that is your king. And we didn't grow up in a monarchy. We don't usually talk that way. But when something is ultimate in life, sometimes we do call it king. Yeah, I'm from Mississippi, and I'm standing here in South Carolina. There was a time where in the South we didn't say that cotton is the greatest revenue generator. We said cotton is what? It is king even affecting our view of other human beings. That's how king it is. Um, There are two big themes that are coming at you in this path. There's lots of themes, and there's lots here that we can't broach, but there's two big themes that are coming at us, showing us things about the Messiah. And and I want to look at those two themes. The first one I've already told you is the theme of the king. But the second one is the Passover. And I didn't know what to call the sermon, so I just called it the king and the Passover. 
because I didn't, I didn't know what else to name it. Um, the king and the Passover. Let's, let's, let's look at this first one. Um, verse 3, these are the words of the soldiers who are tormenting Jesus. And they say, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And I'm not going to go into detail about this, but the, the physical abuse of Jesus, the crucifixion is one part. And before he even goes through a Roman scourging, which is so awful, I, just, I don't even like thinking about it, he had been punched and slapped, and his head had been hit with a reed. So this is just part of his sufferings. As the uh, Roman soldiers do this, they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, we're just kind of like quoting this one part in the bulletin and jumping in here. But, you know, John is written as this big book. If you're just reading through John, you've already heard those words. And Jesus has already appeared before Pilate. And Pilate has asked him, are you a king? You know, like, do you think you're a king? And Jesus says, first, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he says, my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate says, "Uh, so you are a king. And then Pilate steps out to the crowd and says, shall I release to you your king? So when you get to this passage, what you've already heard is king, 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 king. Now, I... Picking up here, I want you to look at how Pilate processes that and how the chief priests process that. They're in Jerusalem. This is, you know, this is ground zero for Judaism. How do those two very different people process this? And here's the weird thing. At points, it seems like Pilate gets it more than the Jews do. Uh, Look at the language in verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then he says it again in verse 6, The chief priest and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And he had said that in the prior chapter. He says it three times. In John, I, don't, I don't find this man guilty. Why are you so upset? And then if that wasn't enough, look down in verse 14, the second part of verse 14. He, that's Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Now just looking at those passages, you almost feel like, does Pilate kind of get it? But what does he do with him? He sends him off to a brutal execution. Why does he do that? And John doesn't give you all the answers, but he gives you just enough to think about. Look in verse 8. He doesn't completely explain what this means, but verse 8. Actually, let me start in verse 7 so you hear what he's responding to. The Jews answered him, Pilate. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why is the Roman big shot afraid of anybody that he's listening to? He's the guy with the power. He's the, I mean, like he said to Jesus, I've got the power to let you off the hook. I've got the power to crucify you. I hold the cards. Why is the guy with the cards afraid? And John doesn't explain it, but in the context, it seems to be this, that you've got a crowd of people sort of saying, hey, look, if you let this guy go, when he's made ultimate claims of authority, when he's made himself ultimate, 
then he's making himself a king. You're okay with it. You're no friend of Caesar's. So apparently, if you don't do what we want, we're going to tattle on you, and then like you might be the one in trouble. But they said something that went to what it was ultimate in him, whether that's fear of losing his position or fear of being executed himself. And the guy with all the power in that context hands him over. The guy with the power is pushed around because of something that's ultimate. Now, look at the language of the chief priests. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. There it is again. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, that's, that's interesting enough that Jewish leaders are talking that way, that they're so, that they're so concerned about Caesar's security and allegiance. But then look at the second part of verse 15. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And you know, sometimes we use that expression, Did I just say that out loud? This is a did I just say that out loud moment. These are not nominal Jews. You know, uh, these are devout Jews. These are chief priests in Jerusalem. They have grown up singing the Psalms and hearing the law and the prophets. They have grown up singing Psalms like Psalm 47 that says, God is king over all the earth. They know that lyric by heart. And they look at a Gentile leader and say, we have no king but Caesar. Why would they say that? And here's the thing. This is where you got to be careful. Is, is this our opportunity, opportunity now to be anti-Semitic? Did they say that because they're Jewish? No. They said that because they are normal. That if this man keeps doing what he's doing and crowds keep responding to him the way they've been responding, it will threaten us, it will threaten our way of life, it will threaten our employment, it'll threaten our place. Get rid of this guy. And whichever it was for each individual chief priest, employment, place, position, whatever. It was ultimate to the point where they would say, we don't have any king but Caesar, if that'll please you. Now do this. Everybody has something that's ultimate. And you know what? It's typically, in fact, almost always good things that go from being good things on our insides to ultimate things. For instance, family. Family is a great thing. But family can go from being a great thing to an ultimate thing. And that can be your family of origin, or it can be your kids. And, and here's, the, here's the amazing thing. Just, this happened to Pilate, and this happened to the chief priest. But it's also true of people like you and me. The closer you get to Jesus, he will expose what is ultimate to you. If you get close to him... It just, he's light. The Son of God is light. He starts to shine on what's ultimate 
in our insides. So, for instance, I love my family. I'm devoted to my family. Family's number one. When you get close to him, then you hear him saying, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, which is such a strange thing for the Prince of Peace to say. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword to set a son against his father, to set a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against um, her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then if that wasn't bad enough, then he keeps going. Whoever loves father or, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then it gets worse. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And it just almost feels like too much. Because what he's saying is, you're called in Scripture to love your family, of course. But you must make me your ultimate allegiance. You must give to me your heart in a way that you don't give it to your child or a parent, or a spouse. And we're exposed. What about this? Uh, Family can be ultimate. Being liked can be ultimate. Just that that everybody like you. And when you get near Jesus, you'll hear him say things like, and you know, I I keep threatening that one of these days I'm going to do a sermon series called things Jesus said that I hate, and which I probably can't do that, but this one would make the list for sure. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Oh, what's he going to say? When men hate you and exclude you and revile you and speak all manners of evil against you for the sake of the Son of Man, Rejoice and leap for joy. Your reward in heaven is great. For so their fathers spoke about the prophets. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so their fathers spoke about the false prophets. And it just feels like too much. Like, look, I want some nice Bible studies and to be liked. I don't want to give you so much of my heart that something happens inside of me and some kind of change takes place inside of me where everyone can't like me anymore. And Jesus is looking back saying, I do not want a a portion of your heart. I mean, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, you know what? I want to be number one in your life. He says, I am life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life. And, you know, it is worth pausing and asking the question, especially if, you've, if you're somebody that's been around this stuff. I know everybody here has not grown up around the Bible or church, but especially those of you who are, you should ask yourselves, when I read in the Gospels things that Jesus said, which are the ones that just grate on me the worst? Because probably what that is, is it's getting to something that's ultimate. Like, Jesus, you can have these parts of my life, but if you went there, you would be ultimate. 
you would be the king of, my, of the center of my life. He does that. He exposes us, all of us. Well, there's this theme of him being king, sort of outing people, what their kings are on the insides, but there's the Passover. Um, look in verse 14. It says, now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. And then down in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, meaning the same thing, the day of the preparation of the Passover. And, and just even leading up to this point in John, John's just made it very easy for you to know when these things happened in Jerusalem and the, and the city is crowded with people and animals, it's crowded because it's the Passover. That's when this is happening. Um, because of that, there's this gory detail in verse 31. Let me read this. Since it was the day of the preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. And what that means is two days into the Passover celebration, there would be certain things that you do, certain parts of the celebration and the commemoration. And so you didn't want to make yourself unclean, ceremonially unclean by handling a dead body. And it, it can take a long time to die from crucifixion. It can take days. And so there was a, um, there was a practice of the Romans that if you wanted to just expedite a crucifixion, because what you die from is not blood loss. You die from asphyxiating. What they would do is take an iron mallet and they would break the legs, which is so brutal, so that the, the person on the cross couldn't support themselves anymore. What kept you hanging on for life is you could sort of prop yourself up and take a breath as you push on your feet that are nailed to the cross. You could push up and catch a breath, but if you broke someone's legs, then your body weight would just go down and pretty soon you would asphyxiate. And so they break the guy on one side of Jesus and they break on the other and they come to Jesus and he's already dead. They're surprised he's already dead. And so they don't break his bones. And then John gives this detail down in verse 36. He says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Where do you think that verse comes from? Because in this context, it sounds like that's quoting maybe from a prophecy, maybe a prophecy about the Messiah, that one of these days the Messiah will come and none of his bones will be broken. And you know what? That's not where the verse comes from. It comes from the law about the Passover. The Passover was the greatest redemption act in the Bible before Jesus. And it was when the people came out of slavery in Egypt. And the night they came out, God destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. He passed over His wrath, His judgment, passed over the Israelites because they had the blood of a lamb on their doorpost, their home, their identity. And so a lamb was always part of the Passover celebration. And the law was when you prepare your Passover lamb, don't break its bones. And if you could have watched some Jewish family, you know, preparing the Passover and maybe a son is helping his mom, he says, why can't we break the bones? She might have just said, I, I don't know, it's just the rule, don't break the bone. If they did that, it would say they obeyed the law. John says, when Jesus dies and doesn't have his bones broken, it fulfilled the law. Now, do you understand what John is saying? 
John is saying all those Passover lambs and all that bloodshed, all those symbols of, wow, people who deserve God's condemnation, seeing condemnation pass over them, they deserve it just as much. But being spared by the blood of the Lamb, John is saying all those lambs pointed to this man, and he fulfills it. That if this man is your lamb, if this man is your Passover, you don't ever have to worry about the wrath of God or the judgment of God falling on you. It will pass over you and not fall so much on another group of people. It will fall on him. How do you fit those together? And a more capable man could do it more capably. Here's the number one thing that comes to my mind. It's hard to take away the things inside of us that are ultimate and give them to Jesus. And that is trust. That's saying, I'm not just giving you sort of like my ethic or my religious life or some spiritual component to me. I am giving you myself. How, do you, how can I know that I can trust you with that? It's because Jesus is a king like no other king. Jesus is the king who's coming to us on the one hand and saying, there's something so wrong with you. It's so wrong with you that when a perfect God who made you sends his perfect son, who would be the perfect king for you, you want someone or something else to be your king and you reject him. And there's a condemnation coming for that. But Jesus also says this, let me take the condemnation for you. Turn to me. I'll be your Passover. There there is no one and nothing in life that will say that to you. And I, it's, it's interesting. I'll tell you what this brought to mind even this week for me. When uh, about a month before I proposed to Dana, this is when I was in seminary and I was in St. Louis, one of her uh, good friends and a sorority sister actually um, was a member of the church where I worked as an intern. And so one of her friends came home for Christmas break. She knew that Dana and I were getting very serious. She kind of sniffed something was coming. But I knew that if I told her anything, like the secret was just toast. So I, she was home for break. She came up to me one day, and she, and she called Dana Do. That was her nickname for Dana. She called her Do. She said, listen, when are you going to pop the question to Do? And I said, do you think if I was going to propose to her soon, which I was, do you think I would just tell you when I'm going to do it and all the details? And she said, yes. Yes, that's what I want you to do. And it's funny, there's something kind of endearing when somebody turns down that like kind of grown-up, nuanced thing, you know, that kind of plays things and is measured. There's something endearing when somebody says, here's what I totally want you to do, please do it, and please stop not doing it. Look at verse 35, because John says things like this all through his writings. He who saw it, he's talking about himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. All through the Gospel of John, and in 1 John 2, John says, look, I touched him with my hands. 
I touched him with my hands. I saw him with my eyes. I heard him with my ears. He is no ghost and he's no myth. I'm writing to you an eyewitness account. And I'm writing you an eyewitness account because I want you to believe in him. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Some of you have never believed in him for the first time. And it is so awesome that you're sitting here. And I hope that's not narcissism. Like, it's so awesome that you're listening to me right now. I'm amazing. No, I'm bald. It's amazing that of all the places where you could be, you're hearing an apostle whom Jesus sent out say to you, I want you to believe in him. I mean, these, the, the things and the people that you are making ultimate in your life, they're not working. Are you willing to concede that point that they are not enough? There is a hole in your heart that can only be plugged by the eternal. And it has to be a person. And Christ is both God and man. You need to turn to him. Please turn to him. Turn to him and say, be my king and show me that there, there will be no condemnation for me. You will be my Passover. What about for the person here who has believed these things for a while, but you've grown cold? And I'll tell you this from experience. Here's the weird thing. We are all a mixed bag. You can be a person who says, Jesus is my king, and you can have competitor kings deep down in your insides. And you know what the answer for us is? Is the same thing. It is to turn to Jesus again and say, help me. Help me. If you would be punched and scourged and beaten and crucified, but then worst of all, if you would have the wrath that I deserve fall on you for me, take this heart. Take this heart. I don't want these competitor kings. Take this heart and pour life into me. Jesus says, abide in me and abide in my word and you'll bear much fruit. Are you not bearing fruit? Turn to Jesus, our King and our Passover. Amen. Let's pray together. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus, Son of David. Would you dislodge and displace the competitor messiahs, the competitor saviors and kings on our insides, even if it's family or work or anything or anyone else, and sit enthroned and grant us life. We ask in your name. Amen.